Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week we are going to be talking about Donald Trump's pan for peace for Israel and Palestine. After three years of speculation and hype, the US president finally revealed his peace plan for Israel and Palestine by the end of January. And while he calls it the deal of the century, and Israel's prime minister, Netanyahu, called him the greatest friend Israel has had, enthusiasm has been less forthcoming from the Palestinians who've now announced that they're going to break off all relations with Israel and the United States and never accept the plan. And also in many other capitals, there has been slightly more uh, tempered response to the plan. To help us make sense of both what's in it and what it means, I have an all-star cast from uh, different bits of ECFR. Hugh Lovett, who's a policy fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program, was in Israel and Palestine last week talking to people on the ground and has been studying the plan carefully. And also joining me from Berlin is René Wildanger, who is a policy fellow on the MENA program as well. He's been studying very closely Germany's attitude towards the Middle East and North Africa. But before he came to ECFR, had a, another life, including being the head of the Hanush Böll Stiftung's office in Palestine. So in Ramallah. Yeah, in Ramallah, right. mm-hmm. exactly. And he's also been carefully studying the plan. But why don't we go straight into it, Hugh? Tell us what is in this peace plan. Hi, Mark, and thanks for having me on. So I think we should look at the plan first in terms of substance, and then the the bigger question is whether we should actually be supporting it and whether it can work. So firstly, on the substance, in unveiling the plan, President Trump called it a realistic two-state solution. But I don't think we should be fooled by the label on the tin. Actually, when we look inside and we, we start going through the sort of the meat of the plan, you know, I think it's quite clear that what the Americans are proposing, despite using the term two states, is something that's entirely different. And in effect, I think what they're trying to to propose and to, to formalize is, in effect, a one and a half state outcome. You could say one and a half states. The EU would probably call this a one state reality of open-ended occupation and unequal rights for Palestinians, to quote the former High Representative Federica Mogherini. Some people may even use the word apartheid. And this term is obviously very charged. But, you know, when one reads the plan, it, it's almost inescapable to come to that conclusion. The plan and is very actually quite clear that it talks about uh, limited sovereignty for Palestinians. It's quite clear that Palestinians will not have control of their borders, that Israel will continue to exercise open-ended and total security control over a future Palestinian state. And the plan is marks a radical departure from these sort of so- so-called uh, consensus international parameters that have long framed a a two-state solution. So it's not in line with this, it's not in line with past UN Security Council resolutions, and it's not in line with international law. And all of these uh, three things have been conditions for EU support. And to finish on the substance, I think actually when you look at the plan and the Americans say, you know, it's time for fresh thinking, actually the plan is much more a continuation of plans that have been proposed by successive Israeli governments since 1967, very much trying to, you know, on one hand prevent Palestinian statehood and at the same time prevent the emergence of a binational state, while also allowing Israel to to absorb a maximum amount of Palestinian territory with a minimum amount of Palestinians. And if I can make one last quick point in terms of whether we should be supporting it, despite everything I just said, you know, obviously there's a moral standpoint, which I think, I hope, still matters. 
Um, as I said, I think the plan is in many ways actually deeply racist in terms of how it frames the language it uses. But from another point, is like from the realpolitik point of view, I actually think it gives realpolitik a bad name. The Americans say this is realistic, but, but it's not. Because I think, you know, for Palestinians, they can't get what they have long desired, you know, in terms of actual sovereign and independent Palestinian state. But for them, there's an easy alternative. You know, it'll take time, but we will eventually see a pivot towards them demanding equal rights within a binational state. So there's not much in it for them to be gained. To finish, I'd say, I think, why well, this is not also realistic. It's also dangerous, not just for Palestinian self-determination, but it's dangerous for Israel. This, this is not a pro-Israel plan. This plan, because if Palestinians do pivot towards demanding equal rights, will pose a fundamental dilemma for Israel. Do they continue to basically rule Palestinians through military force in a system that will be, I think, equated by many as an explicitly bare-bones form of apartheid, but at the same time jeopardize their democratic soul? Or do Israel or do Israelis extend full rights to Palestinians, but at that point lose their Jewish characteristics? So you, you put in a huge amount of, of ideas there, Hugh. Maybe we can sort of deconstruct it a little bit into some of the different elements and, and particularly still look at this question of the, the two-state solution versus the idea of a kind of binational state, which you launched in there beforehand. So, René, do you want to maybe just explain in a bit more detail where the departures are from what was seen as being the plan for a two-state solution, whether it's on on some of the issues that Hughes already touched on, but borders, the whole question about security, the right to return of refugees, the question of Jerusalem as capital. Yes, exactly. I mean, as uh, you already said, the plan basically says all the parameters that we have talked about for so long are not valid anymore. The plan does not even mention international law. It does not mention the word occupation. It does not mention basically the whole framework that we have been talking about. And it, it basically says... Since the UN resolutions have not brought success, since they have not brought about the two-state solutions, we consider them irrelevant. And I think this is a very dangerous approach, not just to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also to other conflicts. It's the complete irrelevance of international law. This is a very bad starting point. As you has outlined, this is not a two-state solution. This is the one and a half solution. And the because American it administration... Include mutually agreed one-to-one -one land swaps. Yes, and, and all the files that you mentioned, we have we have orders. discussed this for 25 years, and we had a UN resolution in 2016, resolution 2334, and this is a UN resolution that very clearly outlines the, these parameters. The Obama administration at, at this point abstained. That was almost a revolution. So we had uh, 15 members of the UN Security Council agreeing or abstaining to this uh, resolution. And it basically outlines um, the parameters for a solution. We don't need a 100-page uh, document that that completely disregards what has been negotiated. But if you have an Israeli government that rejects that and you don't have a willingness from the international community to invade and to, to enforce different borders. I don't see what the practical real-world relevance of all these UN resolutions is. I mean, you know, the reality will continue. Occupation will carry on growing. I mean, isn't it more realistic from a Palestinian perspective to accept at least some kind of statehood rather than carrying on with the, a situation where more and more territory is being occupied and 
they live in a state of of unpeace and unhappiness and can't operate internationally effectively. Clearly, getting ever less support from international actors, their issues becoming more and more irrelevant to the politics of the Middle East. The the sort of solidarity that they expected from other Arab states is, is shrinking. And the guilt which Europeans and others feel about the whole situation is also dying out. We just had the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz with the very last few victims who are still alive there. How much does China, India, other countries really care about the Israel-Palestine question? It's something which was absolutely massive for the post-war generation. But the idea that this is going to be a kind of big international issue which is going to occupy people seems unlikely, particularly given how much tension there is between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There are lots of other things going on in the region which are much more pressing, much more important, and which produce many more victims than the, the Palestinians. Well, you packed a lot into this uh, yeah. question, but you mentioned Auschwitz. Um, we rightly remembered this terrible period in, in German history just two weeks ago. And we talked about international law now. And I think one thing comes from this catastrophe and there's, there's one obligation for Germans. It's universal values. It's international law. And practically speaking, yes, I'm not, not saying that the UN resolutions will somehow miraculously produce a solution, but we need negotiations. There's yeah, international a, law changes, the, the resolutions. Okay, which you okay. Had, we had but, borders in 1948, then we had 67 yes, borders. Yes. Why is the 67 border more immutable than the 48 border, for example? I mean, we could, well, in 1948, there was international law, then there was a war and the borders changed. And then we went to the 68 borders. Yes. There's now an occupation. It looked like there was a deal to be done around the 67 borders. That deal doesn't seem to be available anymore. Okay, but if we want a deal, we will need negotiations. And this is not a negotiation process. I think this is a key problem. We had a ceremony in, in the White House and we had another ceremony in the White House 25 years ago when Clinton hosted Arafat and uh, Rabin. But this time there was only one of the two parties present. There was Netanyahu who was obviously very happy and the Palestinians were absent. So this is the reason why this is not a starting point for negotiations. And the Palestinians always said, we are ready, you know, to talk about the different files, how capital in East Jerusalem for them will ultimately look like will need to be discussed, the settlement blocks and so on. But we need negotiations. And this is not the starting point of the negotiation process is it's an imposition. And, and I think the Europeans and Germany should be very clear about this. And they need to put their own declarations that they rightly make into a, a new political pathway that offers an alternative. I think there's a lot of important points that Mark that you lay out that, that we should, as Rene is doing also, confront head on. So firstly, what is the, the value of 1967 lines? Again, putting aside momentarily international legal determinations and the evolution of international law and how it's approached the territories in 67. Putting that aside, yeah, if, I mean, like, I'm sure Palestinians would be very happy to go to the 19, back to the 1948 borders. But the reason we have the 67 borders, are not just because of international law, but basically because the two-state solution is fundamentally a Palestinian compromise. We were at with uh, our internationally agreed parameters. That is very much the evolution of over 40 years of international mediation efforts to try to, to carve out a, a potential zone of agreement between the parties. So it's not just international law. It's not haphazard. There is actually a rationale. But it reflected the balance of power of 30 years ago rather than, or 20 years ago, rather than the balance of power of 2020. And that's why... It does, you know, we can carry on talking about it. 
And I, you know, I'm a big supporter of the two-state solution. I'd love to see it happen tomorrow. But just us wanting it to happen and saying it's international law, that hasn't been a great strategy for the last few decades. In fact, it's more than that. It's 40 years that Europeans, as you say, have been talking about a two-state solution and where you've had these parameters. But in the meantime, the facts on the ground have changed in quite a fundamental way. The international balance of power has changed. The region has fundamentally changed around it. The sensibilities of, of all the different regions. And there is obviously a new balance of power. So for the Palestinians to expect what they could have got when you had a completely different balance of power now in 2020 seems unrealistic to me. I think that's an important point because we have heard that from the American administration. As I was saying, I think firstly, we should be very mindful that if we're talking about a two-state solution, there's only one kind of two-state solution you can have. And we know what that looks like because we have the parameters and we've had like track two negotiations over years, etc. Now, if we're looking at realpolitik and we say that's no longer possible because Israel has created realities on the ground that no longer makes that possible, then okay, let's have that conversation. But then... Let's not pretend it's going to be a two-state solution. It's going to be something else entirely. And that comes back to my initial comments, which is basically the choice is there for Palestinian self-governance or home rule, where they don't have uh, the full rights that would be accorded to them as a sovereign nation, but nor do they have the full rights that would be accorded to them as citizens of a binational state or citizens of Israel. So that's one option. And there's a word for that. Uh, that word is apartheid. Just to be concrete about it, Hugh, the rights that they're not going to have under that situation are what? The right to have a kind of full army because they're demilitarized and Israel has a kind of overriding security responsibility for the, for the Palestinians. That's the main absence of sovereignty that you're talking about? Or is it the lack of con- contiguous, the absence of contiguity between the different bits of Palestinian territory? Or I mean, what are the main rights that you say are not going to be there? So I think in terms of accepting a demilitarized state, Palestinians have accepted that. That is not the issue here. I think the issue is what the Americans are proposing is a formalization of the reality that exists today for Palestinians. So for Palestinians, perhaps they get to call themselves a state or something like that, but it is the exact same reality as today. It is the reality that anyone will see when they visit the West Bank, which is, uh, you know, occupation has a meaning when you actually see it. Apartheid has a meaning when you actually see it, when you see the dual legal system in place, the dual infrastructure, when you see the checkpoints and the ability of of the Israeli military be able to control every single facet of Palestinian life. That's one option that we're talking about. But they would get internet and it's, I mean, they would get the trappings of sovereignty, which they don't have at the moment. They have a seat at the UN. They would have, a, they would be technically a sovereign state, which they're not at the moment. I mean, you said the word, they would technically be a state, but it would not be a viable state that could build, for example, a thriving economy. And we're talking about the Jordan Valley uh, here that is, uh, that is now, um, talked about being annexed by the, by the Israeli government, the coming government. And this would not be a, a viable state. And as you said before, this is also a threat to Israel in the long term. It's not a viable state. Uh, Abbas called it a Swiss cheese. This would not work. And a two-state solution that would not work in the long term um, is a threat to, to Israel. So, Hugh, you were in Palestine last week. What do you think the new strategies are which are being developed? Is there now a kind of reversion to the idea of a one-state solution and of instead trying to, to fight for full rights for Palestinians within a single state if, if a two-state solution is possible? Or uh, are people thinking 
about launching a new intifada or i mean what are the different kind of options which people are discussing now that this plan's been published so to me what's fascinating meeting with palestinians and also israelis is that this plan is really exposing generational differences amongst those who are really actively thinking about strategies to to confront the occupation So on the Palestinian side I think it's it's very clear and again we saw it from President Abbas's speech to the UN Security Council yesterday the Palestinian leadership remains wedded to the concept of two states and the concept of a negotiated solution and I think because of that they see very few uh, alternative strategies and everything they're doing at the moment is very tactical in order to to try to get back to the table to have negotiation with Israel but on the basis of international agreed parameters and that's been very constant over the past years. To me what's interesting is when you speak to younger Palestinians, I think they see the Trump plan very much as confirming what they've been feeling for 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 years is that the two-state solution is no longer really achievable and that therefore there needs to be an alternative strategy and that alternative strategy should be one that is based on the fight for I suppose equal rights that becomes much more of a rights-based uh, struggle. And you know this is obviously I think there are continuing discussions internally amongst Palestinians and but we need to be clear that there are a number of obstacles that are currently precluding greater mobilization. Those obstacles not come not only from from Israel but also from the Palestinian Authority that has actually dedicated much of its effort to demobilizing and depoliticizing Palestinian uh, civil society uh, and preventing the the emergence of alternative voices, alternative strategies. But there is the demographic factor. You know, at some point, these younger Palestinians will be in positions. Of, uh, of influence uh, or even greater influence and power. So I think we need to be listening to what they say. And what they're saying is basically two states is no longer possible. Now it's time to, to start focusing on the, the fight against apartheid and the fight for equal rights. So do you think that that is, I mean, you lived in Ramallah for a, a long time and both saw how addicted a lot of Palestinians are to the status quo because you have an entire elite that's been built up around it that gets huge subsidies from the international community and have been very wi- willing co-enablers of the occupation over over many years Abbas is is a kind of symbol of, of an entire generation of, of Palestinians who've made the current state rea- uh, reality of occupation possible viable and it's been very profitable for for them in all sorts of different ways as Hugh says they don't seem to be changing their approach yet how much hope is there in this very fragmented and complicated political space to to see different patterns emerging because you had obviously the big differences between the west bank and gaza and kind of continuing inability to to come up with a, a sort of unified uh leadership amongst that older <laughs> generation of Palestinians and a lot of younger people seem to be either resorting to violence or just withdrawing from politics do you think that it's possible to have the sort of civic mobilization that he's talking about well first of all i agree with you i think there's very little hope there's huge frustration among palestinians this is what i was constantly confronted with while i was working there between 2011 and 2015 palestinians are definitely tired of peace plans maybe Trumps or otherwise, they're tired of declarations um, because they've seen that the political action that we would need to make progress on a two-state solution is not happening. And they're disappointed from, from Europe. They're obviously very disappointed.
wanted right now from from the U.S. and they're boycotting them. You are right that uh, parts of the leadership is dependent on international support and maybe some are personally profiting from it. But I think the leadership is also hugely frustrated and they lack the support that they had, for example, from other Arab states uh, in the past. And I think the only mobilization that we see, a serious mobilization, is happening from civil society and probably the movement that has most traction is the BDS movement, boycott, divestment and sanctions. And this is uh, creating very polemic debates here in Berlin and in Europe. But I think from a Palestinian perspective, you have to understand that all these peace plans, the Oslo process, produced a huge frustration. There's no way forward. And the one hope that Palestinians have is that the international community will assert pressure on the Israeli government to end the occupation. And this is what they are advocating for. This is what they are hoping for. This is what they are doing right now internationally. And as you said, a lot of young people, this is the framework that, that they see, not a two-state solution, but... Uh, advocating for the rights and ending occupation. And the final uh, solution that we will see to this problem is not the key point here. So Hugh, to what extent do you think this international pressure is going to come? I mean, you've been looking at how the EU's reacted to the the peace plan and wrote an article about it for our website, which we'll put a link up to. Where are different people coming down on the on the peace plan? Is everyone against it and sticking to the EU approach on the two-state solution or are some countries um, hedging their bets a little? In many ways, the EU has become, in my mind, an enforcer of the status quo. Arguably, it's the status quo that no longer really exists on the ground, if it ever existed but also an enforcer of the status quo when it comes to, you know, what we've been talking about, international parameters, uh, international law, and, and trying to hold the line both on the ground and, and internationally. And that's been the focus of its efforts. It does that because it, I think it genuinely believes that this is the right thing to do in, in two states, but it also does, does it because, you know, the alternative is to, to risk deeply divisive and politically cost, costly internal discussions about what an alternative strategy or alternative approach would look like. So, so in some, I would say, yes, I would expect the EU to continue doing what it's doing, which is trying to, again, to, to hold its positions and, and push back against any efforts to undermine these, uh, again, these so-called international parameters. But that's still very much a defensive strategy. You know, it's trying to put out fires. I think what's going to be much more difficult for the EU is to push forward more proactively and suggest something else. But I would say two things, I think, which is interesting, which we've seen in a statement by the High Representative Josep Borrell recently, uh, also statements in the UN Security Council and elsewhere. And, and it's t the two following things. Firstly, a majority of EU member states, I think, feel that there will inevitably be some consequences should Israel move forward with annexation and should a two-state solution, which is the foundation for Israel and EU-Palestinian relations, should that vision disappear there will inevitably be consequences to the EU's bilateral relations. That's the first thing. The second thing is what we're starting to see now. Q, can you be a bit less cryptic about that? What consequences would there be if Israel moved ahead with annexation? So, you know, obviously, I think this is still very much being discussed internally, and it's only the beginning. I can tell you what I think. Um, you know, I think there's certainly uh, many things that the EU should have been doing sooner, 10 years ago, that perhaps it will finally start doing now, you know, better late than never. That's, you know, a deeper, more expansive application of differentiation, which we've also been working on, recognizing Palestine. Differentiation means treating the occupied territories differently from Israel proper. 
in terms of our willingness to give access to markets and that's what you mean by differentiation, yeah? Exactly. Excluding Israeli settlements uh, effectively from EU-Israel bilateral relations. You know, it's all this stuff, it, it, promoting international accountability mechanism. These are all things it should be doing today. What comes after annexation, I think, you know, if one was to look for inspiration, you know, I would say, like, look at what the EU has done vis-a-vis Russia's annexation of Crimea. You know, there were actually some sanctions imposed against Russian individuals. Products from Crimea are effectively barred from EU markets unless they have a certificate of origin from Kyiv. Other, you know, uh, sanctions related to the tourism industry, etc. You know, I think that's a, an interesting source of, of inspiration. But the final thing is, like I said, every single facet of the EU's relation with Israel, from its association agreement to its twinning programs to the European investment funds, everything is built on the notion of a two-state solution. If that two-state solution is no longer there, no longer on the table, you know, I think the EU has a, a severe challenge in terms of trying to, to figure out how it moves forward. And I'm not being cryptic because I think that I don't have the answer to this, but the whole basis suddenly disappears and, and that will be difficult for everyone. This is all going on while there are big political developments in Israel. We saw elections, slightly inconclusive results, people still trying to fight out for their own political futures. How does all this play into the elections that will be taking place in Israel on the 5th of March? Has the peace plan helped Netanyahu? Yes, I think obviously it has helped him. It has uh, shown uh, again that that Trump is supporting him personally. I mean, he informed both leaders, him and the leader of the position, Benny Gantz, uh, of his peace plan one day before the announcement in the White House. And then he had this big show together with Netanyahu. And uh, ever since Netanyahu was on the road promoting this peace plan, and he's obviously counting on this supporting, using it usually in his election campaign. That doesn't necessarily mean that Likud will win if we look at the the current polls, but it has certainly strengthened him. And he, he personally um, is in a very difficult situation because of the allegations against him. But yes, I think it has strengthened him a, a big deal. So what do you pick up on the ground here? So on the Israeli side, and I'll be frank, you know, I, I met mostly with what's left of the Israeli peace camp and anti-occupation uh, activists in, in, on this trip. But going back to this generational divide, I think for me, that was actually fascinating and also quite depressing. You know, for a, an older generation of Israelis who have dedicated their lives both to, to serving and defending the state of Israel and have actually fought for it, uh, either on the battlefield or in the diplomatic arena, and have also dedicated you know, another part of their lives to, to fighting for two states and against the occupation. The disappearance of two states, I think, is raising profound, dare I say, existential questions. And in terms of you know, not, not just what this means for Palestinians, but what this means for, for Israel's existence. And the, the, as I mentioned previously, the dilemmas that come with apartheid. Many of these Israelis tantamount to a, a negation of Israel, its existence, and their own identity. Now, that's the older generation. The younger generation of sort of uh, anti-occupation activists, you know, I think there's still, like on the Palestinian side, probably going to have to be a conversation about what happens post two states if that happens. And I think, you know, that could happen sooner rather than later. I think annexation is seen by many experts in Israel as crossing a threshold that can never be crossed back from that, you know, will catapult Israel into a situation of apartheid in terms of also how it will change Israel's internal soul. 
So that's quite a, a sort of sobering existential note to end this discussion on. We'll come back when we have a clearer idea both of what happens in the Israeli elections on the on the 5th of March, but also we can see how both the EU but also other actors respond to to the peace plan over time and whether this becomes a new reference point in the discussion or is simply seen as a as an irrelevant cul-de-sac. But thank you very much to the two of you for interesting discussion. We have one thing left to do on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Hugh, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So I'm going to cheat. I actually have two. The first one is a more work-related book by Israeli journalist, a veteran journalist, Amira Haas, about her life in Gaza in the 1990s. And then the second book is a bit different. It's called The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. It's a bit of an older book, but it's basically a sort of telling a bit about her journeys through the Haringold Mountains of Scotland. Cool. What about you, René? I have to be honest, I'm reading something completely unrelated to what we have been discussing. Um, Great. I'm reading the big uh, project by Norwegian author Karl-Uwe Knausgaard called My Struggle. In German, the book is called Different for obvious reasons. I can recommend well, it. But so it's, it's not called Mein Kampf? No. <laughs> what is it called in German? The, the different books have different titles. Great. Thank you very much. I'm going to do a little piece of log rolling here, but there was quite an interesting article by Josep Borrell, the um, EU's high rep, called Embracing Europe's Power, which looks at some of these questions to do with how the European project, which was designed as a way of transcending power politics, engages with a world where great power competition makes it essential for Europeans to be able to answer other great powers with more geopolitical approach. And it's a kind of unusually conceptual piece for a serving politician and is, I think, quite an interesting framework. We'll put up links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please don't be silent about it. Give us a review or a rating on whatever platform you've used to listen to this podcast on. Tweet about it, write about it on your Facebook page or ours. But for now, from Hugh Lovett, René Wittanger, and myself, Mark Lennon, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR podcast is Hannah Zulfi Bowman, and our editor is Marlena Riegel. Thank you.